This is not the America that I would wish to have. I would wish to have a healed America, Matt. I would wish that there was a recognition that there's something that is invisible, something that's undiagnosed, something that's mistreated or mismedicated going on right now in America that needs a different kind of attention. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Mac Leeson. On today's episode is our guest, John Schmid. John is from Milwaukee, but he attended virtually the Zero Mental Health Symposium this year. And that's kind of where our relationship started. hes I now consider him a, a friend. And the reason that I was so excited that he was going to attend this symposium was that he is a career journalist at work on a book about the topics of mass psychological trauma, intergenerational trauma, historical trauma, and the collective impact on society and the economy with an emphasis on resilience, healing, and post-traumatic growth. And not long after this symposium, John was kind enough to send me a note about his thoughts on the symposium, which we'll touch on during this podcast. But he says, I don't know any other place like Tulsa and its home state, which are as advanced in its public discussion and in understanding why it matters to think about the scope and scale of psychological trauma in America. Prior to the Zero Symposium, I thought Milwaukee was pretty far along, but Milwaukee and many other American communities can learn so much from the work underway in Oklahoma related to race racist historical trauma, indigenous historical trauma, white rural oaky dust bowl historical trauma, and more. And so before we get started, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened this year. It has been a challenging one, and we have had so many remarkable conversations. So thank you to all of the guests. Thank you to all of the listeners. You know, most of all, be safe this Thanksgiving. So with that, the mental health download starts now. We have a very special guest, someone that I've been just so excited to talk to for several months now, actually. And so, but I'm going to let him introduce himself because uh, he's fantastic. So take it away, sir. Thanks, Matt. By way of introduction, what am I? I am an economics journalist. I spent my career going abroad whenever possible, writing about global change like globalization and economic change or arcane but important stuff like un- unemployment rates and uh, interest rates and so on. I moved to Milwaukee and th- this is where my life intersects with yours and and my interests intersect with those of your organization. I moved to Milwaukee in 2003 from Germany where I'd been writing about you know post-unification East-West Germany coming together and Europe coming together. And what was interesting to me was that Milwaukee was an economy by the time I got there that reminded me of some of these old Eastern European cities. It was economically stuck. It had deindustrialized but not come back. It's kind of a difficult story for a lot of post-industrial American cities or farm towns or rural communities. They lose their industry and get stuck. It's an interesting question because economists who I was normally accustomed to talking to did not have an answer to a very, very basic question that is so relevant to places like Milwaukee or for that matter, rural Wisconsin, or um, I'm going to say much of Oklahoma and certainly Tulsa. Why can you have a, a city or a community that gets progressively more dysfunctional, socially dysfunctional, dropout rates, unemployment rates, chronic unemployment, despite decades of tech booms or welfare entitlements? The um, dot-com bubble, no end of well-meaning foundation funding and programs, 
job training, job training, jobs, make work jobs, cookie cutter jobs. Nothing seems to halt the downward spiral. So my beginning on this story was, was, was that question, which came from an economic point of view. I thought the answer was not enough jobs. A lot of people think that. A lot of people still think that. I don't think that anymore. I got a research, a journalistic foundation research grant in 016 and started going into some of the communities that in Milwaukee where you have chronic unemployment. And I expected to hear, give us more jobs, give us more jobs. What I was hearing was a very different story, Matt. People were saying, you've got to start looking at something different. You've got to look at trauma rates, trauma, psychological trauma, what's happening, the complexities of the human mind. It was a breathtaking revelation, and it started me down a road that has uh, occupied me for the four years since then, because what I've been looking at is various metrics and ways to measure either PTSD or trauma rates or trauma exposure in the population. It hasn't been done before, but when you look at the numbers, they're pretty startling. And you don't have to be uh, Albert Einstein to put two and two together and figure out what's happened here. Excellent. All right. And so the, the, the way I met you is that you, you reached out and you were actually interested about the Zero Symposium. And I'm so glad that you were able to attend. And you sent me just the most lovely email about your thoughts about the Zero Symposium. So I would love for you to share what you learned at the symposium and what you hope others who attended learned. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to because I still feel a lot of enthusiasm for the Free Day Zero Symposium that you did. And I want to get to the conversation that I kind of was picking up that's taking place in Tulsa that I'm not hearing anywhere else. What what I heard for three days from people largely based in Tulsa is a conversation that the rest of the nation really should uh, start paying attention to. When you look at trauma, there are a couple of basic bullet points that uh, start to emerge very quickly. One is that civilian, non-military style PTSD is very common. And unfortunately, many of the symptoms that you associate with post-traumatic stress are just as common. You know, you're going to talk about depression, anxiety, hallucinations, sleep disorders, homelessness, sometimes too often suicide, the inability to navigate relationships, focus in school, hold a job. Those are basic starting point premises when, you under, when you're trying to get your mind around neurological trauma. But one of the hardest to get my head around, but now, I'm, now I take it as gospel truth, is something called intergenerational trauma or historical trauma. It was something that I wrote about intensively, starting with the first installment of a series we did. It's easy to find if you're looking for the data that we started to present. It, we, it's, it's all archived under www.jsonline.com slash time to heal. We called this series a time to heal because we wanted to put the emphasis on healing. Otherwise, it gets too dark too quickly. Intergenerational trauma is incredibly common, incredibly corrosive, and destructive to lives. To those who are unfamiliar with the idea, a 30-second layman's explanation might be in order. The child who grows up amid violence, who witnesses violence, who has that sort of sense of normal, who is conditioned to expect the next worst thing, to, to see threats in the world, grows up themselves traumatized and often has children with, who are traumatized. The idea is to break the cycle. 
you can trace intergenerational trauma in different ways. When people talk about African-American communities, they bring it back to slavery, for instance. That's seven generations. It's a difficult concept, but it's an important one. In white communities, you can find it. But nowhere in my experience, Matt, has I, have I found the locus, the universe. You know, we're talking about something that's as old as the Bible, literally, Exodus 25. It's as old as Homer and the Odyssey. It's important to understand intergenerational trauma, but it's just as important to understand its universality. And that's what I heard in Tulsa. I heard about the Greenwood race massacre almost 100 years ago. Your symposium was very well-timed for that. That might have been, to those who don't know it, over 300 deaths in one night unprovoked and an entire economically self-sufficient community torched in one night. It was, I am not, I, I, I'd have to look it up. I'm not sure that anything on that scale has happened before. And so Tulsa is able to talk about the intergenerational trauma, what some call post-traumatic slave syndrome from a very unique point of view. But that's not all. The Oklahoma community is home to many indigenous and native communities. They have a story of intergenerational trauma that is exceptionally deep, unknown to many as well. Compulsory boarding schools, kids ripped away from their parents to go to be forcibly assimilated with corporal punishment. That is as traumatic a childhood experience as you can have. Oklahoma deals with that native indigenous trauma. And then what took me so by surprise was the economic trauma of the Dust Bowl and the Okies and the migration. You know, that is important to understand. We get it in high school English class by reading Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. We get it every now and then when you see a reproduction of a black and white photograph by the great photographer Dorothea Lang, who photographed the migrant mother sitting alone with kids on a dusty road, no place to sleep, no place to eat. So you have in your community a very lively and very important discussion on the university of intergenerational interconnectivity, intersectionality of, of trauma of the highest order affecting whites, blacks, and natives. I, I don't see how, mu how much more you, importance you can have in a community. Milwaukee is trying to have the same discussion, but it's not as far along. So this podcast is coming out the Monday of Thanksgiving week. And so, you know, when you when you talk about, especially here in Oklahoma, where, you know, the Native American population is is very strong and, and, and we all know someone whose ancestors were persecuted and just in ways that we can't even imagine. When you talk about historical trauma, you know, what does that mean to you, especially during Thanksgiving week? Yeah, well... You had to tie it to contemporary America, didn't you, Matt? There's a there's a lot there. What are we looking at? And what are we looking at in contemporary America? We're looking at a pandemic. To start there, it's a Thanksgiving where the greatest of all American family traditions to me seems like Thanksgiving. It doesn't matter what your confession is; you get together with your family. This beautiful non-denominational, warm national feeling is denied. I'm not planning to see my family this Thanksgiving. So instead, what you have is a pandemic. People who are already hardwired to have a stress response in normal everyday situations now are thinking those who are preconditioned and hardwired to having a stress response in situations where there's not even a perceivable threat are confronted with the very real thought that if they go outside, if they go to the store, if they meet a friend, if they shake a hand, that they may become a carrier. I think we all know people who have taken that 
to a point of anxiety, unhealthy anxiety. And I want to be thankful. I am an optimist by my nature, and I want to uh, always find a reason on Thanksgiving. So, you know, obviously the idea of safety is something paramount. But if you want to talk about racist trauma in Thanksgiving of 2020, you're coming off a year where where it's going to where you're going to have to do some deep thinking on the nature of Thanksgiving because you're going to have to get past what has been a horrible year. Many think of Breonna Taylor or George Floyd. I'm I'm talking to you from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just down the road is a town called Kenosha. It's like a mini Detroit or a mini Milwaukee, an old industrial town that lost its industry. I'll just cut to the chase with what I would call a high trauma population. In July, I believe it was, there were three young boys in the back of a car who saw their own dad at close range, unarmed, shot in the back at close range, in front of their kids, five times by a white cop unprovoked. The man was black. What ensued was days of protest. A few buildings, a few businesses were set ablaze. A young white man from Illinois came up, got a gun in his hand, and decided that he would join the vigilante movement and just to make things worse, killed two people and injured a third because he apparently believed he was helping to restore order. This is not the America that I would wish to have. I would wish to have a healed America, Matt. I would wish that there was a recognition that there's something that is invisible, something that's undiagnosed, something that's mistreated or mismedicated going on right now in America that needs a different kind of attention. You know, we're all thankful for what we have and we we have perspective that, you know, we are blessed in so many ways, even though we are living in a very strange and dark time. You know, what are you thankful for in regards to, you know, being a storyteller, being able to share these powerful messages with your audience? Hey, Matt, I appreciate that question. I also do want to say that I have a family and a wife and we've been healthy. And so... COVID aside, you know, we do, I I personally have a lot to be thankful for. As a storyteller and as a journalist, I, I am actually quite grateful. I did spend so much of my career traveling around places like Eastern Europe or China, trying to figure out the world, security arrangements, managing foreign relations, you know, what nations are in economic ascendancy and which are not. I, it was I felt like the work was important when I was doing it, but to have a new data set, to have been able to develop and time to develop and editors who supported me in developing this notion that there is something that you could call mass trauma, that it is measurable. It was 15 years ago, what I'm talking to you about was invisible because no one had bothered to collect the data and what data there had been was not standardized, not globally standardized. Now you can take the same trauma exposure or PTSD prevalence surveys with the same methodology and use them in Eastern Europe, you know, Yugoslavia, Northern England, or Tulsa. I can't help but put two and two together and look at these numbers and and realize that there's a story here that's really important to tell. And I don't see a lot of people telling it, so I guess it comes down to me to some degree. I'm sorry if that sounds grandiose, but that's that's the story I've got. <laughs> nice. Okay. So tell people what you know. What what's next for you? What are were you excited about? Mm-hmm. Well, I 
had the great privilege of working in the newsroom of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It's uh, what in the last century would have been called a regional newspaper. But as newsrooms have adapted and as the Internet made news, there's no such thing as local news anymore, let's face it. Global events impact local situations and vice versa. And to think locally is restrictive. It doesn't do any anybody any help. The newsroom that I worked in was trying to develop as much global perspective as it could. I had a lot of opportunities. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, as, as it turned out, in the years I was there, I was watching it evolve and, and becoming a much more entrepreneurial newsroom. And I was able to be part of that with my own stories that were coming in and, and and gathering momentum. One story led to another. It was like pulling yarn out of a sweater. And, and soon I was developing a, a fairly large worldview on, on the epidemic of trauma, civilian, psychological, non-military trauma on a mass scale in the United States. And a book publisher approached me and asked if I could tie it together into a book. And so that is my current project. I'm currently creating a new framework for this material and doing a lot more research. I would love, I'll be really upfront with you, I would love to, if I can, get the chance, come out to Tulsa and meet some of the people I only saw through the screen and hopefully bring some of their perspective in. It would make me so happy to get to meet you face to face. One, because you are awesome and, and and I appreciate you and everything you've said on the podcast today. And two, that would mean that the COVID is over and that would make me very happy. <laughs> I'm so I'm so ready for COVID to be over. So anyway, until then, I just really appreciate you uh, taking the time and coming to the Desire Symposium. And, you know, because what you're, you, you are now an ambassador for the symposium. And, you know, I, I know that you helped spread the word about it and you're part of the country and we appreciate that so much. So what we do to close out every podcast is we just have our guests share one last bit of wisdom. It can be a bit of wisdom about anything you'd like, but share that with us and we'll be done. I appreciate your way of ending so much <laughs> because there have been gifts in this experience for me as a reporter, Matt. And by far the greatest is this newfound faith in human resilience that I've been able to discover. People do break the cycle. I have met the most beautiful non-judgmental healers, and they have a lexicon all of their own. We take, we meet people where they're at. These are the people, these healers, they've walked the journey off in themselves, and that's how they become the teachers. They are the walking exemplars of what it means to be resilient. The very notion of a wounded healer is, is a beautiful thought in my mind, and I would you know, these are the people who have been to hell and back. But because of that, they have a gift to share. And it just occurs to me. And I heard so many of them at the Zero Symposium. I was surprised that a online conference could make me feel so engaged in something. I didn't expect that. But you're left with a very clear realization about a contemporary America. This country needs all the wounded healers it can muster right now, whether they do somatic healing or faith-based healing or EMDR or whatever you want to talk about. Many of them were at the Zero Symposium, like I said. There was all forms of different healing. And if this nation is going to turn things around, if it's going to break this cycle, it's going to need all of those that it can get. And it, it gives a new sense of purpose to those who are currently, I, I would like to think it would give a new sense of purpose to those who are struggling with their own anxieties or depression or suicidality or addictions or homelessness. 
those people have so much to give right now. 